There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Verse 10 that we ended with last week. Now the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken against his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile. He did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning, opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. And Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, but the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. All of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've had this morning. It's been a sweet time of worship. And the song that Leslie has shared to remind us, Lord, that uh, you are in every area of our lives. And sometimes the things that we think are the worst is the very vehicle that you use to bring us to yourself. So, uh, Bless your word this morning, Father. Take these lips of clay and let them make a difference in the hearts of your people. Asking your name, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> the following is a true story. The date, November 3rd, 2004. The place... The zoo at Taipei, Taiwan. Out of nowhere, a man suddenly jumps into the lion's den and begins to witness to the hungry lions. Jesus will save you, he shouted to them. Apparently it worked because right before they came over to eat him, people clearly heard one of the lions say, For this meal we are about to receive, we are truly grateful. Amen. Just kidding. They really didn't say that. And they didn't exactly eat him, but they did chew on him for a while before he was rescued by zoo workers. Guards drove the lions away with water hoses, and police shot them with tranquilizer darts. The man, identified only by a surname, Chen, climbed out and was taken to the hospital. Why did he do it? He said God told him to. A doctor said Chen, 46, has psychological problems. Really? I should have went to medical school. 
God gets credited with an awful lot, though, doesn't he? The problem is when people say things that aren't true. God has always had a problem with that. In Jeremiah's times, there were false prophets. Listen to what God said. This is just a smattering of comments that I pulled out of chapter 23. This is the Lord speaking. Well, not me. I'm not the Lord. You know what I'm saying. The real Lord says, I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. I've heard what the prophesied say, who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the heart of those lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. So as we covered last week, we live in a world which is con- where we are constantly surrounded with a huge assortment of voices. And so we must always be on guard and vigilant about what we do with so many different opinions vying for our attention. I'd like to back up to verse 10 and cover something that I should have covered last week. It says, Now the Lord came and stood and called out as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. I looked at that phrase, stood and called. The thing that stood out to me is that the Lord came and stood before Samuel, and yet Samuel did not see him, but only heard his voice. And as I thought about that, that was very encouraging to me. For it reminds us that there are times where the Lord may be standing right before us, and we are completely unaware of this. And sometimes we need that, don't we? Sometimes our friends and families fail us, and we are left all alone. Or maybe our friends and families are there, but they are powerless to change the circumstances, no matter how much they wish they were able. The great apostle Paul knew this firsthand. Listen to these words near the very end of his life. And as I read it, remember, this is a real man with real feelings and emotions. He is writing from a cell on death row. Listen to both the anguish and the hope that is contained in these words. This is 2 Timothy 4.9. Paul says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds." Be on guard against him yourself, for he has vigorously opposed our message. At my first defense, no one supported me, but everybody deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Now listen to these next words found in verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. 
It's hard to imagine the emotions that must have went into the writing of verse 16, where Paul said, No one has supported me. Everyone has deserted me. Then we see the word, but. Like Pastor John was talking about this morning, but the Lord stood with me. The word but has only three letters, but it is usually huge in its ramifications in the Bible. I heard of one guy who was going to write a book called All the Big Butts in the Bible, but he was afraid that the title would be misunderstood, so he didn't write it. I don't know why he would say that. The point is, is that no matter how low and lonely we may ever be, we can be sure that the Lord will be standing there. So with that as our background, look at verse 11 with me. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning this house from beginning to the end. The Lord says, Behold, I am about to do something in Israel at which the both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, this vivid turn of a phrase occurs a couple of times in the Old Testament. Have you ever been so terrified that... Where am I at here? I'm sorry. (laughs) That you cannot speak and your legs quiver like I am right now. Um, Here, a similar sensation is described in the ears of someone hearing terrible news. God was about to do something in Israel that would have that effect on the ears of everyone who heard. The simple but terrible news was that God was going to do what he had promised to do. On one of the rare occasions that the Lord had spoken in those days, remember from chapter 2 that a man came to Eli and delivered a prophecy of judgment. The word of the Lord to Samuel was now simply that that was all going to happen. Simply put, God is patient and long-suffering, yet there comes a time when he has to judge. And when he does, it will be, as it says at the end of verse 12, from beginning to end. It was Longfellow who wrote, Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. With patience he stands waiting, and with exactness grinds he all. We know that four times the Lord spoke to Samuel, and yet Eli never noticed. Eli was staying right next door to Samuel, and yet Samuel heard God, and Eli didn't. What was it that was keeping Eli from hearing? Perhaps he had grown comfortable in his position as a priest, and yet he has lost sight of what a priest is supposed to do. He was satisfied with life as it was. Or at least he wasn't dissatisfied about it enough to do anything about it. Well, he paid lip service to change. The Bible tells us that he rebuked his children for misusing their position. But he did nothing to stop it. And guys, if we aren't careful, we can also get that way concerning our salvation. We're happy with just enjoying the benefits. But we're not fulfilling the responsibilities that goes along with that. We are no longer hungry for God's voice. We just want to rest. We just want to kind of veg in the spirit. But friends, just as Eli's family, along with the entire nation of Israel, suffered because of the neglect of Eli, so do our churches, our families, 
and even the world suffer because of our neglect. Look at verse 13. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. He did not restrain them. The Hebrew says he did not frown upon them. The judgment of God against human wickedness is always a terrible thing to contemplate. It's hardly possible as we are embroiled in sin to clearly see the rightness of God's ways and his judgment. It's very important for us to take care here and humbly listen to the word of God, not passing judgment upon it, but allowing it to illumine our minds. Because by the standards that we might apply to ourselves, Eli was not an excessively wicked man. His various failures, such as mistaking Hannah's prayer for drunken mumbling, his inability to curb his sons, and his slowness in recognizing that God was speaking to Samuel, could all be readily attributed to his advancing years. The trouble with all that is Eli is not being judged by us. It is the Lord who said that his sons were blaspheming. He did not do what he should have done. It is not for us to set in judgment over the Lord. He is the God of knowledge by which all deeds are weighed. And there is a certain arrogant absurdity in responding to this passage as if we know more about Eli's innocence and have a keener sense of justice than the Lord does. Eli failed to properly discipline his sons. And you know what the really sad thing about all that is? When we get to the 8th chapter of Samuel, we're going to read that when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel, and yet his sons did not walk in his, in his ways, but they also turned aside to money and took bribes and perverted judgment. You know what that tells me? You can do everything right as a parent, but your kids still have free will. People often quote this verse from Proverbs concerning their children. Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way in which he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let me tell you what I think that does and does not mean. It does mean that if in principle, if you bring up your children in a godly manner, they are more than likely going to have that foundation and always remember it. It does not mean that if someone brings up a child doing all the right things, that they are ensured that even if their kid turns wicked, that that child will one day come to the faith. Now, why would I say that? Because if I'm convinced of one thing, it is that the Bible works in real life. And there are countless instances of parents who brought their kids up in a godly home, and yet that child chose a life of evil and died cursing God with his very last breath. So now we have a dilemma, don't we? Either Scripture is wrong, or my understanding of Scripture is wrong. And let me say, whenever that happens, the correct answer is always the latter. We have just misunderstood that Scripture. So why bring my kid to church then? Well, because there's also countless examples of kids who have turned to a life of evil, but somewhere down the road... All those prayers, all those Sunday schools, all those scriptures come flooding back to them. And like the prodigal, they decide to step out of the moral pig slop and go back home. There are far too many good godly parents who are made to feel like failures because of the free will and choices 
that their children have made. Now, Samuel is a great example of this. He is a prophet of God and a giant of the faith, and yet his kids were about the same as Eli's. Verse 14, And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house should not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. The message given to Samuel in verses 11 through 14 focus more on Eli's sin than it does upon his son's. Specifically, God indicates he's about to bring judgment on Eli's house because he knew of his son's sin, but he did nothing to stop them. God judges Eli not for failing to rebuke his sons. He evidently did that, but failing to go beyond that when they refused to listen to him. In verse 14, we are now told that the matter is past repentance. They have passed the point of no return. This is a serious lesson for us. There comes a time when there is no longer the option of repentance. The only thing left is the judgment of God. Now, God's judgment may come later than we expect, but we kid ourselves if we don't think that it's coming. But here's the thing. Whenever God has to judge someone, we can be sure he was far more patient and far more loving than any of us would have been. It's often that people just never consider that one day all of their sin finally piles up to the point where God has to judge it. As I said before, sin works more by erosion than explosion. It is incremental in nature and virtually unnoticeable for a while. But make no mistake, a crash is inevitable. Scientists now say that a series of slits, not a giant gash, sank the Titanic. The opulent 900-foot cruise ship sailed in 1912 on its first voyage from England to New York. 1,500 people died in the worst maritime disaster of that time. The most widely held theory was that the ship hit an iceberg, which opened a huge gash in the side of the ocean liner. But an international team of divers and scientists recently used sound waves to probe the wreckage buried more than two and a half miles under the water. Their discovery? The damage was surprisingly small. Instead of a huge gash, they found six relatively narrow slits across the six watertight holds. It's the same with our character. We need to be just as afraid and careful not to get let those little slits get into our character as do the big gashes because the slits are more likely and also more subtle. I want it to be clear that the small lapses in our character can be a devastating thing. Perhaps today you're thinking that the small slits in your character aren't that big of a deal. It was just one little lie or it's just one bottle. I want us to know that sin starts small with a small breach of character but it will end in a titanic-sized disaster. Though Eli and his sons were priests, they could offer no sacrifice that would now atone for their sins. Their sins were deliberate and defiant, and for such sins, no sacrifice can be offered. Not only had they defiled themselves, they had also defiled the priesthood. The Lord had been long-suffering towards the house of Eli, but they hadn't repented and turned from their sins, And now it was too late. Apparently there comes a day when one will not be able to turn to God. 
When Hermann Goring was placed in prison at the time of his trial, and later when he was to be executed, the prison chaplain had a long interview with him. The chaplain emphasized the necessity of preparing himself to meet God. In the course of their conversation, Goring ridiculed certain Bible truths and refused to accept the fact that Christ died for sinners. His was a conscious denial of the blood. Death is death was the substance of his last words. As the chaplain reminded him of his hope of his little daughter meeting them in heaven, he replied, She believes in her manner. I believe in mine. The chaplain was very discouraged when he left. Less than an hour later, he learned that Herman Goring had committed suicide. God called that man, even at the end, and yet he refused that call. And God calls many times, but there comes a point to where a man's heart can be hardened. Proverbs 29.1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. I wonder if we understand the dreadfulness of those words. If the gracious provision that God has made for the forgiveness of sins is spurned, scorned, disdained, and finally despised, there is nothing left but the fearful prospect of God's judgment. It's been expressed like this. There is a time I know not when, a place I know not where, which marks the destiny of men to heaven or despair. How long may men go on in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end and where begins the confines of despair? When answer from those skies is sent, ye who from God depart, while it is called today repent and harden not your heart. Verse 15. So Samuel lay down in the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. So after probably little or no sleep, what does Samuel do the following morning? Well, he demands breakfast in bed. After all, God has handpicked him to be the prophet of the nations. No, not at all. In humility, Samuel gets up and does what he has always done. He opened the doors to the house of the Lord. He had the heart of the psalmist who said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of those who are wicked. The key to serving God is to do whatever he puts in front of you and then allow God to move you to a better and a higher position if God so chooses. The majority of serving Christ will be in the mundane matters of our lives. Oswald Chambers nails this when he writes, Drudgery is a touchstone of character. We look for the big things to do. Jesus took the towel and washed the disciples' feet. We presume the place to be is the mountaintop of vision. He sends us back into the valley. We like to speak and act out of rare moments of inspiration. He requires obedience in the routine, the unseen, and the thankless. Our idea for ourselves is the grand moment in the hushed crowd. His is ordinary things when the floodlights are all switched off. Because Samuel was obedient to God and to Eli, he heard the message from the Lord and knew what the Lord was about to do. Now, this was certainly a weighty message given to a young boy, 
But in so doing, perhaps God was rebuking the spiritual lethargy of the adults. For to which of them could he give a message like this? And we are told that Samuel was afraid. You know what? It is easy to fear people. During his years as the premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the atrocities of Joseph Stalin. Once, as he censured Stalin in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a heckler in the audience. You were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that, roared Khrushchev. An agonizing silence followed as nobody in the room dared move a muscle. Then Khrushchev replied quietly, Now you know why. It is not a sin to be afraid. But it is a sin if we allow that fear to prevent us from doing whatever the Lord wants us to do. Look at verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also. If you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Just a quick comment here. We are told that Samuel was afraid of, his new, of what his new responsibility would remain. And now we see the Lord arranges him for him to meet that responsibility and that fear head on. It reminded me of how eagles teach their eaglets to fly. The mother takes him from the nest and flies to a dizzying height and then drops the poor eaglet who is flapping like crazy as they plummet to the earth probably wondering, man, what has gotten into mom? But at the last second, the mother swoops underneath them, catching them, and does it again and again until the eaglet learns to fly. That's precisely what the Lord is doing here. He is teaching his young prophet to fly. Verse 18, And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And being told of the impending judgment, Eli says, It is the Lord. Let him do whatever seems good to him. Now, there are two schools of thought concerning Eli here. Was Eli's response to the message act of submission or passive resignation for something that couldn't be changed? His two sons, he knows, will perish in one day, and his family is going to lose the privilege of the priesthood. So really, what was there to live for? All the old man could do was patiently wait for the sword of judgment to fall. Or... This may have been Eli's finest moment as he acknowledged and accepted the rightness of God's judgment. I'll leave that for you to decide. I love verse 19. It says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of his words fall to the ground. This was the metaphor taken from the idea of water being spilled on the ground. We must be careful that we don't allow God's word to needlessly cascade to the ground. When he prompts us to do something, we should do it. Send a card, make a call, bake a casserole, or even better, a chocolate cake. (laughs) Perhaps he's calling you into ministry or missions. Whatever it is, don't disregard his direction. If you ever hear yourself say, I know what the Bible says, but you are in danger of letting that word drop. God's word is wonderful. We should not waste it. When I read that, it reminded me of one of my favorite word pictures concerning Jesus. It's found in Luke 4.22. It reads, And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. 
And they were saying, is not this Joseph's son? The gracious words that were falling from his lips. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I wouldn't mind that on my tombstone. Verse 20. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. We are told now that all of Israel knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet. In Peter's second sermon in Acts 3.24, we read this. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and all successors onward also announce these days. Here Peter is telling us that Samuel is the first recognized prophet in Israel. Not one who is speaking sporadically here and there as in the book of Judges, but a prophet who is speaking as a national received prophet in a permanent sense. Simply put, Samuel is doing what he has been created to do. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told a story about a goose who was wounded and landed in a barnyard with a bunch of chickens. He played with the chickens. He ate with the chickens. And after a while, the goose thought that he was a chicken. One day, a flight of geese came over, migrating to their home. They gave a honk up there in the sky, and he heard it. Kierkegaard said, Something stirred within the breast of that goose. Something called him to the skies. He began to flap the wings he hadn't used, and he rose a few feet in the air. Then he stopped and settled back down into the mud of the barnyard. Kierkegaard finishes with this comment. He heard the cry, but he settled for less. Fortunately, Samuel gives us a much better example. And how did he know? It says the Lord appeared to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Did you know that the Lord still wants to appear to us today? You see, sometimes we want God to write in the sky. We want to have a burning bush experience. However, God has chosen to reveal himself to us primarily through his word. That's not to say that he doesn't lead us personally by his Holy Spirit, but his principal method of revealing himself is through the word. That's why reading your Bible is so important. In closing, I'm sure most of us can remember the cartoon character Popeye the Sailor Man. When Popeye would become frustrated or if he didn't know what to do, he would simply exclaim, I am what I am. Popeye was a simple seafaring man who loved olive oil. He was unpretentious in all of his dealings. I am what I am. When we look closely at Popeye, it's as if he is saying, Don't get your hopes up. Don't expect too much. I am what I am, and that's all. And before Samuel listened to God, that's what ancient Israel was saying. I am what I am. But God didn't want Israel to stay like she was. Therefore, through Samuel, God calls Israel to a new resolve and a new beginning. And this new beginning will be characterized by God's word as he gives it to Samuel. What does that look like? Come back next week, same bat time, same bat channel, and find out. Father, we do want voices from commercials to advertisements to friends and relatives and even the voices in our own head, Lord. Uh, We want to hear your voice. We want your voice to come through crystal clear 
above all other voices. Teach us to hear that voice, Lord. And after hearing it, even more importantly, Lord, teach us to obey what you say to us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.